All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm lead pastor, and uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, today we have the, uh, one of the fun opportunities. We have a Celebration Sunday, which is our opportunity to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and show you uh, some people that are laboring in the background, people that you may not know, may not see, um, but you are reaping the benefit of their efforts. They, they are bearing weight. They are doing work. They are sacrificing um, in critical ways. Uh, so that the entire community, uh, our entire faith community can benefit. And this morning we have the unique opportunity of celebrating um, some unique leaders. Uh, we have over the weekend installed three new elders at Trailhead Church. And so I want to invite these guys up here with their families. I want to introduce them to you and, and um, give you a little bit of background on, on who they are and, um, and what they do. These guys have spent the last year... Um, going through an elder training uh, and assessment process. Uh, it takes a, uh, we, our program is a full year, so they, they have been going to monthly elder meetings, weekly prayer meetings, ad hoc meetings, retreats. They have been sacrificing time, energy, money, uh, sanity, um, and family time uh, to invest. And, and, and the reason why um, is that they love the church and, and um, you, you sacrifice for what you love for, right? For God so loved that He gave. And so these guys give, man. They give. They give of their time. They give of their energy, their talents. Um, they have given humbly and allowed themselves to be examined and tested and talked to and questioned. And, um, and, and they have just uh, come through this process with integrity uh, and humility. They have earned my respect, and um, I respect each one of them. I am not just the lead pastor of the church, I'm a member of this church. I am an elder, but I am under the elders. Um, and so, um, in many ways, as we go through this process, I feel very, very keenly that it's important for us to empower the right people to be elders of the church, um, because it directly affects me and all of us. And, uh, and I am very, very pleased to, um, to bring these guys to you today. So this week, uh, the elders at the end of this process, we, we sent out a letter to the members and regular attenders saying, hey, if you, if you, you know, put them under the microscope, if you know anything about them, we need to know, you need to let us know. And these guys humbly submitted to that. And, and then yesterday morning at our members meeting, I was able to present them to the members of the church. They were, they were affirmed by the members. They were voted in by the elders. Um, and so let me introduce them to you. Um, this is Clinton Val Doherty. Um, Boaz is not with them. They're newborn, um, but hopefully he's sleeping somewhere comfortably. Um, next to them, we have Aaron and Joni Parks um, and, uh, and their kids, Anna and Matthew and Ryan and Whitney. Um, and next to them, we have the Newcombs, um, Aaron and Holly Newcomb. And um, I'm going to go in reverse, uh, Jay and um, Amos and Clark. There we go. Um, these guys, you guys, I'm, I can't even tell you how important they are to the life, the integrity, and the health of this church. Uh, the wheels would have fallen off this bus long ago if I didn't have um, faithful, faithful people um, helping to bear the weight uh, of leadership in this church, helping me discern the direction of God's will, holding me accountable, encouraging my heart, and then helping us distribute the weight of responsibility. We have 18 community groups, and we're growing uh, there's just no way um, one person or even a small group of people can bear that weight with integrity. And so I'm very, very thankful that the Spirit of God has led these guys to this commitment and these families because it's more than just a, uh, the elder. It is the elder's family. They, they sacrifice and they bear the weight together. And so I'm incredibly grateful for you guys. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite up our current elders, um, the ones that are here. So Dan, Dan, Kevin, that's all of them. Um, Come on up. I'm just going to pray for these guys. Um, if you don't know, Kevin, Den, and Dan are, are elders um, currently along with me. And so, um, y'all, we're going to do the, uh, the charismatic with the seatbelt thing on. So just go ahead and extend your hand. It's okay. Uh, I'm going to pray over these guys. You can pray with me, okay? Um, but but let's, let's pray for these guys um, as, as they take this important step. Father God, we thank you for the gift of these families to our community. We thank you, Lord, for um, shaping within them a desire to sacrifice for the good of our church, to lead through love, to sacrifice time and, and energy and finances and um, uh, all the things that we love to protect in our margins. 
um, so that others can be blessed, man. I thank you that they want to serve in ways that are often unseen and often unthanked. I thank you, Lord, that, that they have a, a deep desire to know and to feed and to love and to protect the sheep as under shepherds, Jesus, under you, the chief shepherd. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Trailhead Church, the gift of this body, and pray that you will richly bless us through their leadership. Protect their homes, protect their marriages. Um, we know, Lord, they are on the front lines of, of what is genuinely a spiritual battle. And so we would pray, Lord, that you would protect them, allow them to thrive in the midst of it. May the suffering be redemptive in all ways, bringing greater blessings and greater experiences of grace. So bless them. We thank you for them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, thank you. Thank you. All right. Come on. Clark and Amos, you guys did awesome. All three services. Good job. Good job. Matthew, Ryan, Anna, good job. Whitney. <laughs> She's looking at me like I'm crazy. All right, you guys, we're going to the book of Jonah. Let's grab our Bibles. Go over to the book of Jonah. We are concluding our series in Jonah this morning. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 774-775. This morning's sermon is entitled Amazing Grace, and this is where we're going to be bringing it full circle, which is kind of an amazing title considering that we're, the whole sermon series is called Scandalous Grace. Uh, We've had sermons entitled Ugly Grace and Merciless Grace. Um, This has been a hard book. It was honestly a heavy book to study, a very heavy book to preach. I hope it's been a beneficial book for you to study, but where I want to do this morning is bring us full circle around to to recognize that even though God's grace is often intrusive in ways we don't enjoy, is hard in ways that make us hurt, it is good, right? It is good. Our God is not safe, but He is good. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to do that by going back to chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is Jonah's psalm of praise. After he's gone through all of these events and he reflects on, on it all, he came back later and he wrote this incredible psalm in which he gave thanks from a deep place of gratitude, praising the God who had um, brought him through these, these events of suffering and difficulty to ultimately set him free and to bless him. And so we're going to be looking specifically at Jonah 2.8, but we're going to go ahead and reread the entire chapter for context. So I'm going to begin in verse 1, and you can follow along. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, um, we have a crazy story, right? I mean, this has been a crazy story. Uh, This guy is a prophet of the God Most High, but he has done anything but be a faithful prophet. He began as the rebellious prophet running in the the opposite direction. He became the reluctant prophet, giving, finally delivering the message, but hoping it wouldn't be received. Then he became the resentful prophet sitting on the hillside outside of the circle of God's grace, resenting the blessing of God. And this morning we see that he eventually becomes the repentant prophet. He actually does eventually make the turn to the place personal change. He actually is transformed and released into the joy of God's grace. And that's what I want to take a look at this morning, because last week we ended up with him baking, right? He was baking in the oven of God's discipline while he was sitting on a hillside baking from an eastern, a scorching eastern wind that God had sent to him after he killed the plant that was giving him shade, right? And, and in the midst of that baking, God showed up and said, do you do well to be angry? And we know that Jonah said, yes, yes, 
Uh, I do well to be angry. And we know why he did well to be angry. We know why he felt justified in his anger. We've all been there. It's because he felt defrauded. It was because he felt like he didn't get what he deserved, that, that he didn't get what was due him. It didn't turn out the way he wanted it to turn out. He wanted God's blessing, but he wanted God's blessing on his terms, in his way. He, he wanted um, God to stay in his plan, right? The, the servant of God was resentful because God wasn't acting like his servant. Right? He wanted God to obey him. He, wa- he wanted God's grace to lift his, his shame and to remove his guilt, but he didn't want God's grace to humble his pride or to tame his rebellious will. So God went to work. God went to work, not just through Jonah, but in Jonah. God was working through Jonah's suffering, and in fact, as we saw, increasing Jonah's suffering. Right? A wonderful chapter. It's like, you're uncomfortable. Let me make it worse, right? I'll give you a plant so that you think you get some relief. Then I'll kill it, and I'll send a scorching east wind, right? God even increased his suffering. Why? To perform his greatest miracle, right? There are some incredible miracles in the book of Jonah, right? We have this this chapter 2 where Jonah gets swallowed by a great fish, right? And then three days later, gets vomited up on shore, right? A megalodon comes, swallows him, doesn't eat him, regurgitates him, and he, and he gets to keep going, right? That's an incredible miracle, right? And then chapter three, we have an entire city of Assyrians repent at the preaching of a five-word Hebrew message, an incredibly terse message, right? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. A simple message, and yet we see an entire city respond. What an incredible miracle, right? But, but the greatest miracle that takes place in this entire story is not the miracle of what God does through Jonah. It's the miracle of what God does in Jonah. The greatest story of grace in this story is the story of a grace that pursued a rebellious prophet when he was running, that confronted a rebellious prophet in his resentment, that finally freed um, a, a, a prophet into repentance, into freedom. One of the most important messages, I think, one of the most important lessons we can learn. And this isn't just Jonas throughout Scripture. The greatest miracle God's going to perform is not something He's going to do through you. It's something He's going to do in you. We are God's greatest challenge in many ways, right? We are called God's trophies of grace in the New Testament in the sense like for all of eternity, we're going to be like this trophy sitting on the shelf, God's trophy of grace. Why are we a trophy of grace? Because we were like God's greatest miracle right? What God does in you is a greater miracle than anything God will do through you. You need God to perform a miracle in you way more than you need Him to do something through you. God, and and, and connected to this is this idea that God loves you exactly as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you where you are, right? We've said that a lot going through this series. God loves you exactly as you are. You you can't do anything to make Him love you more. You You can't do anything to make Him love you less, God doesn't love you more when you're all cleaned up and moral and, 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 and self-controlled, and, and, and He doesn't love you any less when you're messing up, because the reality is you're always messed up, you just don't see it as clearly, right? God doesn't love you any more because you perform or any less because you fail. God loves you because He has chosen to love you. You can't do anything to change that. God loves you exactly as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will change you. He will free you. Child of God, you will be conformed to the greater Son. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. He will set you free. That is the greatest miracle God will perform in your life. See, this is the hard lesson Jonah had to learn. And verse 8 of chapter 2 is where he distills this lesson into a single sentence. Right? I think chapter Verse 8 is, is the center of this psalm, and I think it's honestly the center of the entire story. Uh, it is both a statement of reality and an incredible warning to our souls. So let's take a look at this. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. It says very simply, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Uh, it is easy for us to read a verse like this and miss how powerfully it's us. Um, we don't think of ourselves as an idolatrous people right? Yeah, we got American Idol, right? We know that, that fans, like sports fans, you know, that comes from the word fanatic, which means a dedicated one to an idol. Um, but we use that term ironically, 
We use that term as, as kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of funny. We don't really have idols, right? Idols are those, those weird, funny little statues from a bygone era, part of a, a superstitious age and a superstitious people, right? They're little things carved out of wood or stone or bone, and, and you go to a temple and you sacrifice to it, and then you get little miniature copies so that you can come home and put on your mantle so that you can have your own little God carrying with you all the time, right? That, that's not us, right? All right, so let's talk about how this text applies to us. Um, let's talk about how it, it absolutely applies to us. Um, first of all, what does it mean to pay regard to vain idols? Well, the word pay regard in the Hebrew means to pay attention to, to guard, and to serve, right? So what that means is to pay, again, pay, to pay regard to vain idols means it's something you think about. You pay attention to it. You study it. You like to think about it. In fact, when your brain goes idle, often this is where it goes, right? Like water running down a hill, it seems to always go to the same, you know, uh, uh, ravine going down the hill. You will come back to the, when you're paying attention to idols. This is what, this is what's incredibly easy for you to think about. It's very easy for you to study and, and you, whatever it is, you guard it. You feel kind of protective of it. You get a little defensive when it's threatened, right? You don't like for it to be threatened. You don't like for it to be, you, you want it, you guard it, and, and you serve it. You invest in it. You give up time for it. You give up money for it. You, you want it to thrive, whatever it is. You want it to succeed. You, you serve it. You invest in it. You, you pay regard to it. What is it? It's a vain idol. Literally in the Hebrew, this means vanities of worthlessness, right? You pay regard to these vanities of worthlessness. And what that phrase does is it provokes us to think about the fact that these are things that, that we place our hope in, but they're not worthy of that hope, right? We, we want to believe that these things are going to make our lives better. We want to believe their promises. In fact, we're eager for their promises. We, we want them to, to, to make us promises. Uh, and we think, man, if I could just get this, my life's going to be better. My life's going to be fuller. I'm going to be more secure. I'm going to have more joy. I'm going to be more worthwhile. I'll have more pleasure and, and freedom in my life, right? We, we, we set our attention on these things because they make promises that we want to believe, right? but they are vain promises because they can't deliver. They write checks. They cannot cash. A little bit like being a blues fan, right? Not very many blues fans in here, or, or that you're, you're way too sensitive. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like they start out the season, and it's like all this promise. What a great lineup. And then, you know, yeah, all right, still. Uh, Cardinals, Cubs, not very many sportsters in here. Y'all aren't sportsters? Okay. That's cool. Uh, so, so the illustration very simply is this, man, that fell flat, um, is, that, is that there are things that give us hope, and we love the hope, but they let us down, right? And, and when they let us down, we're just waiting for them to give us hope again. Just give me something to hope in, right? You failed in your promise. Give me another promise. Give me, give me a little more hope. Y'all, this is the thing with idols. We love them. That's why we pay regard to them. We love them. We love our idols. We, we love to serve them. That's why, man, we'll spend our money on them without even thinking about it. We'll spend our time on them without, without counting the cost. We, we love our idols. We'll guard them, right? They'll let us down, and we'll get angry at them when, when they let us down, but man, we get defensive if you say anything bad about them. We will guard them, right? right? We may get a little angry at them, but mm, don't you say anything bad. We guard them. We get defensive of them because we, we want to buy the hope they sell. We want to believe the promises they make. So here's the thing, y'all. We, we are worshiping beings. We are created by God to worship. It's just the way you're wired right? Um, the great theologian Bob Dylan uh, once said, you got to serve somebody. Bob Dylan? Bob? Bob? No? 
Bob Dylan. Um, y'all should listen to more music. Um, but he, he wrote a song, and it's really profound in its simplicity. You've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And, and really what he's getting down to is this tension. You are wired to worship. You are wired to pour yourself out at some altar, right? Which means you will worship all the time in some way. The question is, what are you going to worship? You will look to somebody or something outside of yourself to do for you what you can't do, to be for you what you can't be. You will pour yourself out to something in worship, longing for it to give you what you cannot obtain on your own, to meet the, the fundamental needs of your heart for, for security, for significance, for worthiness of love, and for joy. You will come to something outside of yourself and you will pour yourself out to it. And you won't even think about it because whatever it is, you love, right? The, the old English word for worship is worthship, right? And what that means is, is you worship what you find worthy of the sacrifice. That, that's why you love to sacrifice for it. That's why you love to guard it. That's why you love to think about it and study it. And, and you don't even pay attention to how much you invest into it. Why? Because it is worthy of the investment. You pour yourself out in worship. To whatever it is you think is worthy of that investment. Anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol, right? It's not just this carved thing from the ancient world. It's, it's anything in your life that, that you pour yourself out to with the hope that it is going to somehow meet your deepest needs for significance, for control, for worthiness of love, or for joy. Anything. Now, here's the thing with idols. Idols aren't bad things. Idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. Idols are good things that we turn into God things, right? We take a good gift from God, and it is good, and we say to that good gift, now you're going to meet the needs that only God can meet. You're going to do for me what only God can do. You're going to be for me what only God can be. We take a good gift from God and, turn it, and treat it as if it were God. We take a good thing and treat it as an ultimate thing. And it can be anything, y'all. It can be your job, your career, your achievement, the recognition. It can be inner circle, right? Inner circle idolatry. Like if I could just get into that circle, if I can just be recognized by those people, if I can just sit at that table. It can be, it can be family, right? If, 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 if my kids do well, I'll be okay. If, 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 if they attain a certain level of achievement, then, then I am affirmed. If, if, right, it, can be, um, it can be travel and experience right? in this age of minimalism and anti. So we reject the idolatry of consumerism. I will not own a lot of stuff. I will own very little stuff. I will take great pride in how little I own. Why? So that I can go travel and have the most experience. And then we just traded one aisle for another, right? So, so instead of consumerism and owning a lot of stuff, we now measure our worth by the amount of experience and travel. And, and, and it can be sex. It can be, it can be, you guys, it can even be your religious moral improvement. Your church stuff, that can become an idol your self-improvement project. Like, I will be more moral. I will be more self-controlled. I will. Anything can become an idol. It is a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. When we look to these things to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be, so that we can avoid humble dependence on God, right? We hate humble dependence on God because it, we hate being charity cases, right? We, even though the, the old English word charity simply means love, right? We hate being completely dependent on love for our, for our worth. I want to earn my worth. I want to establish my glory. I want to, I want to build my security. I, I want to make myself worthy of love. I, I, I want to define the boundaries of my own pleasure and joy. So we look to these things to do for us what only God can do. Those who pay regard to vain idols those who pay attention to guard and serve vanities of worthlessness, things that make promises that they cannot keep, good gifts from God that simply cannot be God, those who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. That word steadfast love comes from that Hebrew word hesed, which we've discussed in previous sermons. It is, it is God's covenant love. Hesed love is one of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. Covenant love very simply means that God commits himself to bless you. 
not because of you, not in response to you, not because you're worthy of it or because you've earned it, but because God has decided, I will bless you. I will give you an inheritance of joy. I will give you an inheritance of dignity. I will give you an inheritance of blessing. I will do this because I will create a covenant with you to get you there. Has said love is covenant-making love. What that means is, is I commit this to you, so I'm going to give you the blessing, and then I'm going to create the pathway for you to get there, and then I'm going to pay the price for you to, to make the journey. I will do this all for you. It is one-way love. I will give you the blessing. I will create the pathway for you to get there, and I will pay the price for you to make the journey. That's has said love. One-way love. So a simple observation that this verse is making. If you pay regard to vain idols, you forsake your hope and steadfast love, you can only worship one God. You were designed to worship, but you can only pour yourself out at one altar. You can only anchor your hope to one love, which is really what, what this is about, right? It's, 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 it's I love my idol because I think it's going to fulfill a promise, so I anchor my hope to it. This is what's going to make it better. This is what's going to solve my problem. This is what's going to give me security. This is what's going to make me worthwhile. This is, you know what I'm saying? Like we anchor our hope to our love. You can only anchor your love or your hope to one love. You only look to one power to meet your deepest needs. And when you anchor your hope to your idols, by default, you are not anchoring your hope to God's has said covenant love. You forsake the better and truer um, anchor of your hope, right? You, you instead choose something all, uh, aside from it. So, so what I'm hoping you're hearing is this. The question isn't whether or not you have idols. The question is what is your idol? We all have idols. We were designed to continually pour ourselves out in worship. We were born in our sin separated from God, which means we were continually trying to replace God with things that aren't God. We look to our jobs, we look to our families, we look to our significance, we look to our reputations, we look to our wealth, we look to something other than God to meet the fundamental basic needs of our heart, right? The, the, the theologian John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. As soon as you tear down one, you just build another, right? Idols can change. Um, you can be attached to one, and if it gets destroyed, you'll just build another, and, and because we are continually pouring ourselves out to someone or something, we are continually attaching our hope to some love. So how do we identify what the current idols are in our heart? Well, let me give you two diagnostic sentences that will help you out. First, my life would be complete if I had. And the second, my life would be destroyed if I lost. My life would be complete. I would finally have joy. I would finally have significance. I would finally have security. I would finally be worthy of love if I had. And my life would be completely destroyed if I lost. Life wouldn't even be worth living. Now, here's the thing with idols, y'all. Um, you can have lots of idols right? Think of your, your life as like the hull of a ship making a journey. You can attach those, those anchors to a lot of different places, but the reality is a lot of those anchors can fail, and, and while it's disappointing, it's not crushing, right? That one, uh, that was that hurt. Uh, that made me grumpy. Uh, that one. There's usually one that if that one breaks, you feel like you're going to die. There's usually one that is the core idolatry. The core thing you're looking to, other than God, to give you significance, give you uh, control, to make you worthwhile of love, or to give you um, joy and pleasure. And in fact, if you follow this far enough, you're going to get a little defensive. Some of you are already getting a little defensive. You don't like where this is taking you. You're like, Steve, Steve, this is, no. No, if I answer these questions, it takes me to something that is good. It's not bad. It is good. Who are you to challenge this thing? It is good. Yeah, I know it's good. That's what we do. We take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We take the good gifts of God and treat them as if they were God. And when our idols get threatened, we get defensive. 
when our idols get threatened, we can get mean. You know why? Because our identity is connected to them. We think our deepest needs can only be met by the promises of that thing, that person, that relationship, that success, that job, that experience, whatever it is, they are good things. Good things, right? It's a good thing to have someone who loves you. It is a good thing to have a family. It is a good thing to have a, a meaningful job and a productive life. It is a good thing to have checklists and be able to accomplish them throughout the day. It is, it is a good thing to, to, um, to be able to speak important things and have a lot of people be influenced by what you say. It is, it is a good thing to, to be able to, to find rest and, and leisure and, and escape and, and, and rest, right? It, these are good things. The problem is we turn these good things into God things. So you may have many idols, but they're usually one central idol. Now listen to me, and this is, this is what you need to hear, is that when you anchor your hope to this false idol, you forsake your experience of the Hesed love of God. Now listen to me, you may anchor your hope to a false God. If you're, if you're Christ, if you believe the gospel, that doesn't change God's love for you. It just changes your experience of God's love for you. Because you didn't anchor your, your hope to the Hesed love of God, you're not experiencing the blessing of the Hesed love of God. The love of God actually feels threatening to you because you don't want to give up your idol. Your freedom, your autonomy, your, your hope, your... This is the story of Jonah. Right? We move through four chapters of Jonah, and the story of Jonah is not about the fish, and it's not even about the Ninevites. The story of Jonah is about Jonah. And Jonah's not the hero of the story. <laughs> Jonah's the one that needs to be rescued, not the Ninevites. Jonah's the one that needs to be delivered. Jonah's the one that needs... Jonah needs to be changed. This is God's amazing grace. This whole book is about a prophet who was determined to anchor his hope in his vain idols. And a God who refused to let him get away. Now, I'm not saying refused to let him get away with it. God wasn't punishing Jonah. When God sent the scorching east wind, he wasn't sitting back laughing and, you know, ha, 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 you know, you're going to challenge me. No, this wasn't God punishing Jonah. This was God disciplining Jonah. Remember, discipline is the intentional Introduction of discomfort to help us see what we don't currently see or to grow in ways we're resisting growing, right? This is, this is discipline. God is bringing discomfort into the life of Jonah to help him grow. He's doing it because it's love. If he didn't do it, Jonah would remain anchored to his vain idols, which means he would remain unchanged, which means he would eventually live a life of quiet despair like many Christians in America, going about their religious duties, going to church, doing their thing. But if you lift the hood and look at what actually drives their engine, it is duty, not love. It's religious behavior, not joy. They're going through the motions. They are not experiencing transcendent, transforming joy in the presence of a God who loves them. God loves us too much to leave us anchored to these false, vain hopes that will ultimately rob us of our experience of joy and leave us in despair. God pursued Jonah. He refused to let him get away. He was patient, he was unwavering, and he was unrelenting in his love. He would not leave Jonah, and he will not leave us to be destroyed by these false hopes. Follower of Christ, He will have you. See, God loves us enough to expose the vanity of our idols. God loves us enough to expose the vanity of our idols. We don't like it when He does. In fact, those can be some of the most difficult and unpleasant seasons in your entire life. Because you're, you've anchored your hope in this thing. Like, your existential reason for existence is anchored to this. This is what makes me important. This is what makes me secure. This is what makes me, makes me worthwhile of love. This. 
And then God comes in and crushes your idol and exposes it as the vain hope that it always was, exposes that it cannot deliver on its promises. It cannot do what you are hoping it will do. God does this in his amazing grace. And we feel like we're dying. For Jonah, I don't know what his idols were, maybe autonomy, maybe a distorted view of justice, maybe his nationalistic sense of pride. I don't know. For us, maybe it's our jobs, our sense of of accomplishment, um, getting recognition from people, getting the approval of people or a specific person. Maybe it is having a specific kind of experience in life, if I can just have vacations, if I can just have my downtime, if I can just have my me time, if I can just have, right? Maybe, maybe it's, it's um, whatever it is that makes you feel worthwhile or secure or important or like you can actually reach joy. When God comes in and sticks his foot on the throat of your idol, It feels like you're dying with it because you put all your hope in that thing. That's the thing. That's the thing. The success of my kids, the security of this relationship, the admiration of my peers, the promotion at job, the expanding platform of fame, the ability to to have a vacation, to get away, to turn it off. And then God comes in and starts choking out your idol. God comes in and dries up the plant. God comes in and sends in the scorching east wind, not only choking out your idol, but making it worse. Not only do you not get your vacation, but your life just amped up 15 degrees. Not only do you not get your promotion, but that guy you compete with who deserves nothing gets it in your place. Not only do you not get the raise, you get demoted or laid off. Not only does your child treat you disrespectfully, but they make really bad choices and start down a path of self-destruction. There are times when God amps up the pressure and it will feel like you're dying. But listen to me, he's doing this to destroy our false anchors and to make us aware that we were never secure to begin with, that this thing we placed our hope in could never deliver on its promises. He he will at times bring the storm. But listen to me, even when he brings the storm, he's in it with you. God loves us enough to meet us in the storm that he brings. Again, God, God doesn't bring suffering into our lives and then ha, 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 you know, wringing his hands and walking, watching from the... He's there with us, man. He is there with us. When God destroyed all of Jonah's false hopes and then made it worse, dried up the plant and sent the, the scorching east wind, where was God? He was right there with Jonah. He was right there with Jonah, quietly, in the midst of the storm, asking, do you do well to be angry? That wasn't an accusation. It was an invitation. When God asks questions, it's not because he needs to know something. It's because we need to know something. When God asks questions, it's not so he can learn something. It's so that we will learn something. It's not so that he can see things differently. It's so that we will see things differently. Jonah needed to see that his greatest suffering didn't come from Nineveh repenting. It didn't come from the plant drying up. It didn't come from the scorching east wind. His greatest pain, his greatest sorrow, his greatest hurt came from him. It was the failure of his idols that increased <laughs> wow, that word didn't want to come out. It, it, it increased exponentially. 
pain. He needed to see that he was the source of his greatest suffering, not God, not the failure of his idols. It was that his idol was dying, and because his idol was dying, he felt like he was dying. God's like, man, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah's like, I do well to be angry. Kill me now. All right, Jonah, hmm, it's just a hot wind, dude. That might be an oversized reaction. A little tip, when you have an oversized reaction to suffering, it might be because there's an oversized love being put to death. When you, instead of just being hurt or sorrowful or depressed or, or like, like, there are natural emotional responses to bad things happening. But when you go like, okay, this should be uncomfortable and I'm maybe a little bit grumpy and no, I'm going to like extreme, exp- <laughs> like this is existential despair. Life's not even worth living anymore. It might be because there's an oversized love being put to death. Jonah's response, man, put me to death. Why? Because in his mind, his life was only worth living if that hope fulfilled, his, his idolatrous hope for autonomy or national pride or, 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 or uh, whatever it is. What's really, really cool in this, you guys, is that God doesn't show up lecturing Jonah about his idols. See, the solution here isn't knowing no more about your idols. He doesn't come up and lecture Jonah and say, you need to repent of your idols, and you need to, you need to it's something you need to fix, it's something you need to change, it's something you need. He, Jonah doesn't need to know more about his idols because the heart of the problem isn't in something he knows, it's in something he loves. So God shows up not lecturing him, but loving him. The way we get set free from our false loves is once again to respond to the true love of God. The way we get set free from our idolatrous love of the things that God gives us is actually to respond to the infinite outpouring of the God who loves us. When we are undone by that love, when we respond to that love, when our hearts are once again saying, man, it's amazing you love me. You love me this much. It's when we respond to the love of God that our desires are realigned. Our hopes are re-anchored. Our love is let loose from its idolatry to be anchored once again in the Hesed love of God. This is the amazing grace of God. He will turn up the heat and he'll stick with us right in it. He will will choke out our idols. And while we are writhing in pain, accusing God of being a villain, he will love us so that we will respond to that love. God will destroy our idols, but he will not abandon us to their destruction. Final point, God loves us enough to weather the storm of his wrath, to deliver us into the promise of his steadfast love. Remember, God's covenant love, God promises a blessing, then creates a pathway to get there, and then pays the price of our journey. God loved us enough, not just to promise us an inheritance, but to pay the price for us to get there. Jonah was a a prophet of God, but he was a rebellious prophet. He was a servant of God who demanded that God be his servant. But God didn't judge him for his rebellion. Jesus was judged so that Jonah might be blessed, just like us. Jesus, the true and better Jonah, came, and instead of being swallowed by a fish, he was swallowed by death so that he could die in our place as our hero, as our substitute. He drank the cup of God's wrath to redeem us from the consequences of our cosmic treason. Hebrews 6, 18 through 20 says this, we who have fled for refuge, that's us, those who have believed in Jesus, if you believed in Jesus, this is you. If you believe the gospel, if you're, we who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, right? That the hope, that has said love, hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I love that image. 
that image that, that my, the cord of my love is anchored in Christ and he's already where I long to be. He is already where I long to be. He's already passed through death and he stands in resurrection. He is in the new kingdom. He is in the restoration of all things and he is drawing me to where he is. It's a beautiful image. We have strong encouragement. Listen to suffering. In those places you hurt right now, in those places where the east wind is coming in and buffeting you right now, God is giving you strong encouragement to hold fast to this true hope. He is giving you strong encouragement to find again your security, your significance, your worth, and your joy in His love for you instead of in some other thing. Listen, when our idols are destroyed and our anchors suddenly break loose, that thing that we put all our hope in, man, when it lets us down, it can feel like we're lost like we're drifting, like we're alone, like we're abandoned, and like we're dying. But God is with us in the storm because while he destroys our false anchors, he never abandons us to their destruction. So let me round this out by telling you what this means. This means that you may have forsaken your hope for him, but he will never forsake his love for you. You may have tried to place your anchor in a false hope. In fact, I guarantee you did but he has not stopped being your true hope. You know why? Because he will have you. Follower of Christ, he will have you, even though you will at times have anything but him. He will pursue you in love, even though you pursue anything but him. He will be faithful to his love for you, even though you are faithless and abandon him for our idols. He will love you, and he will hold you close even as you rage against him, accusing him of being the one who is killing you, and all he is doing is choking out your idols. He will woo you with a persistent love that will not be put off. And the pain that we so much resent in our lives is being used by a God of steadfast love, a God of amazing grace to free us from our false hopes and anchor us securely in our experience of his said love. He will not be offended. He will not be put off. He will not give up. He will not fail. He will be the hero of your story, just like he was the hero of Jonah's. Your hope isn't in your grip on Christ. Your hope is on Christ's grip on you. Your hope isn't in your ability to get it right. Your hope is in his ability to get it right. Your hope isn't in your ability to finish this race with integrity. Your hope is in the fact that he already has. And he will draw you in. He will set you free. He will transform you. He is a God of his said love and he has purchased your inheritance. He has created the path. He has paid the price and he will get you there. That is amazing grace. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of his said love, a God of covenant love that you have committed yourself to our good <laughs> and then paid the price to get us there. That you loved us enough to humbly pursue us even as we rage against you and misrepresent you. You love us enough even while we pursue other gods. And we get angry at you because you won't bless our false gods. <laughs> you, the king, won't be our servant. You, our God, won't behave like our creature. Man, what an incredibly humble and loving God you are. I am so thankful that our security does not rest in our performance for, for you, but in your performance for us. That, that our only hope is that you are a covenant-making God who fulfills his covenant.
You are a God who makes promises and those promises never fail. That we will be set free. We will be changed. We will be drawn into the harbor of your love and transformed into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray for my friends who don't know you yet that they might hear the invitation to respond to this love, to simply believe the gospel, to believe that they can be loved this much, to believe that they can be invited to this kind of blessing. I pray for my friends that are struggling right now because there is something happening in their life they don't understand and they resent. Lord, free them into genuine and honest sorrow and even honest anger, but free them from the bitterness of resentment that comes from the fact that they can't be you, nor can their idols replace you. Meet us where we are, Lord, and take us where we have no hope of going in our own strength for your glory and our good. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.